It's Tuesday, August 7th, and this is The Daily Dive. As the financial fraud trial of President Trump's former campaign chair, Paul Manafort, continues, Robert Mueller's team called its star witness, Rick Gates, and he is singing. Described as Paul Manafort's right-hand man, Gates admitted to helping his boss evade taxes to the tune of millions of dollars, bank fraud, and hiding offshore accounts. Laura Namias, reporter for Politico, joins us for more on Rick Gates' testimony and how the defense will try to get Manafort off. Next, as Chicago experienced a violent weekend, gangs and guns are being blamed. Over 70 people were shot, 12 people were killed, no one was arrested. Amur Madhani, Chicago resident and reporter for USA Today, fills us in on what happened over the weekend and reactions from local leaders. Finally, Silicon Valley has become a den of spies. Increasingly, spies are infiltrating the Bay Area to steal trade secrets and technology, but they are even involved in political espionage. Andy Ross, columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle, joins us for details on a Chinese spy who was a driver for Senator Dianne Feinstein for 20 years. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. You're just left to imagine how much tension there was in that courtroom with Rick Gates just feet away from this man who used to be his boss, who he could potentially be sending to prison for the rest of his life. Joining us now is Laura Namias, author of the Politico New York Playbook and also a reporter for Politico. We've been following the trial of Paul Manafort, President Trump's former campaign chair and the star witness in Robert Mueller's investigation. Rick Gates took the stand and he just incriminated Paul Manafort and all sorts of stuff. Multi-million dollar tax evasion, bank fraud, hiding offshore accounts. He was singing. What did Rick Gates say? Rick Gates basically said that he helped Paul Manafort avoid paying taxes on millions of dollars of income and hide millions of dollars in income from foreign sources in the form of loans on his behalf over a period of years. He also admitted to embezzling hundreds of thousands of dollars from Manafort's firm while he was working for him. In essence, a way to get out ahead of what Manafort's defense team is going to try to do when they're able to cross-examine him at some point, which is attack his credibility as a witness. This is the first time that these two guys have been in the same room since, I think, February, they say, when Rick Gates pled guilty and said he was going to cooperate with Robert Mueller's team. There's just this quick tweet from Jim Shuto. He's a CNN reporter. He said, I have I've seen some cold stares in my life, but watching Paul Manafort stare down his former deputy, Rick Gates, was remarkable. So and that's the reports we're saying too. Rick Gates is kind of not making eye contact with Paul Manafort, right. but Manafort was trying to stare him down as much as he could. This is one of the peculiarities of federal trials is that for the most part, in almost all cases, you're not allowed to have cameras in there. And everything that we know comes to us from reporters' written accounts and from court artists who produce those wonderful pastel sketches. So you're just left to imagine how much tension there was in that courtroom with Rick Gates just feet away from this man who used to be his boss, who he could potentially be sending to prison or helping to send to prison for the rest of his life. And all of the accounts said that Manafort there was just electric and maybe even terrifying and that Rick Gates could barely look at him. So just leaves it open to the imagination what that must have been like. Well, right. He said he was even taking tons of money away from Paul Manafort himself. Prosecutor Greg Andres, the questions were 
very simple too sometimes. Were you involved in criminal activity? Gates said yes. Did you commit yeah. crimes with Mr. Manafort? Gates said yes. How was he helping him cook the books? How were they getting away with this? He said that he was acting at Manafort's instruction, giving fake information or lying about Manafort's income to his accountants, to his bookkeepers, so that they could submit records and hide their income and essentially defraud the federal government. And he also said that he was instrumental at Manafort's request in helping to disguise a bunch of income as a series of loans. So essentially making it look like money that he was getting was something that would have to be paid back when in fact he never had any intention of paying it back and therefore wasn't going to pay any income taxes on it. So he was Paul Manafort's right-hand man and in a sense doing this man's bidding, but not necessarily as totally responsible for it. Right. And that's pretty central to the prosecutor's case is that they want to make sure that everybody knows that Paul Manafort was kind of the ringleader before Gates even testified. a, A former accountant of Paul Manafort went up there and said that it was clear that Mr. Manafort knew what was going on. Yes, the prosecution has had a number of witnesses testify to Manafort's role and the power that Manafort had in directing all of this activity. And that just provides sort of a cushion for Gates' testimony because they anticipate that the defense team for Paul Manafort is going to try to undermine Rick Gates as much as possible. The prosecutors need to just hammer it home that the fish stinks from the head down, essentially. And Paul Manafort is really 100% the person in charge here. At least that's what they're alleging. What is the Manafort defense team going to do? Because it seems like there's a mountain of evidence now. Rick Gates is singing. Former accountants are singing. They want to pin it all on Rick Gates, but that's not going to be enough to get him off. What else is the defense trying to do to keep Manafort out of uh, jail on this one? First, they are pinning it all on Rick Gates and saying that he is embellishing things in order to get a break when it comes to sentencing. Specifically, when you agree to cooperate with the federal government, typically if you provide information that's valuable to the prosecution's case or that bolsters their case, then that can be helpful in getting you a, a lesser sentence. That's a pretty good incentive in some cases for people to embellish or make things sound more criminal than they were. But Manafort's defense lawyers also have a number of other defenses. Some of them are a little bit, uh, they, they might be far-fetched, but <laughs> we'll see if a jury buys it. They're arguing that Manafort was too busy to be cooking up any kind of tax scheme or too busy to really have gotten so far into the weeds of setting up all of this skullduggery. Um, <laughs> right. And that part know. is all that, you know, he was making all this money from these pro-Russian groups in U- Ukraine and that he was so consumed with the consulting aspect of the job that Rick Gates is the one who cooked all the books. Also, Manafort's defense attorneys are they're going to say that Manafort was willing to go talk to the FBI about some of the alleged tax dodging. And they're suggesting, why would a man who's guilty willingly walk into a, a meeting with FBI agents? Didn't think he was doing anything wrong. He wasn't trying to break the law. That goes to the heart of the matter of whether or not he was deliberately trying to hide income as part of a larger scheme. Well, things are heating up and it's still an uphill battle for Paul Manafort, but we'll see how it all turns out. Laura Namias, reporter for Politico, author of the Politico New York Playbook. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. (laughs) 
These shootings are not random. They are fueled by gang conflicts. We know who they are, and we continue to send a message that it's okay to commit these crimes by not doing anything as a community. We are all supposed to be on the same side. Joining us now is Amr Madhani, reporter for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us, Amr. Glad to be here. So you are based in Chicago, and Chicago just had a crazy weekend, one of the deadliest spasms of violence in months. There was at least 72 people shot, maybe 13 killed. What is going on in the streets of Chicago? I guess overall, I guess despite all this bad news, the situation has improved in Chicago compared to the last couple of years that were extraordinarily awful. The murder rate is down about 23% through July, and shootings were down about 19% through July compared to last year and even more compared to 2016 when the city had 762 murders. But it's still, compared to a lot of other big American cities, it is still a more violent place. There's been more than 300 murders overall this year, and the city's on pace to have more murders than any other city in America again this year, and will likely have more murders than much bigger cities New York and Los Angeles have, will tally combined. A lot of this was attributed to gang violence, and I know that the mayor, Rahm Emanuel, had made some statements and also a police chief out there. Um, they said there were no arrests made so far, but they had leads on people. Yeah, that's right. So that's also one of the really sad things about the situation. The Chicago murder clearance rate, the number of these cases that are solved or someone's quote, arrested. Quote, solved, right? In some cases, uh, murder is cleared because the person who may have killed that person may have been determined to have also been killed either in that incident or a separate incident. There's other ways beyond actually investigators finding A through gumshoe work that, you know, Amr did it. But that rate is really low. You know, last year it hovered around 18 percent for um, 2017. You know, that compares the national rate usually is around 60 percent. So a lot of these cases don't get solved. And, you know, part of the problem is the shooters can go into these situations and you can carry guns. And there's a really high probability that if you commit one of these crimes, that you're not going to get caught. There were some other local police who were saying that a lot of these criminals aren't even scared of the law. They know they're going to get away with it. They're, they're not worried about even running away. They'll kind of stick around even because they know that they're just not going to get caught a lot of times. So a lot of these were like drive-by shootings. People were just shooting out into large groups. So where exactly are these shootings happening? Chicago is sort of this tale of two cities or uh, three cities. A lot of this violence is happening in you know, four, five, six districts on the south and west sides of the city. These areas are predominantly African-American and Latino communities that are low income. You know, they suffer from economic disinvestment uh, to a certain extent. Schools often aren't that great in these communities. Uh, few jobs, high unemployment, uh, and somewhat of a thriving um of thriving gang activity. Thriving might not be the right word, persistent gang activity that goes along with the, the gun violence. And what has the reaction been by the political leadership out there? I know there was uh, some protests going on last week where they were protesting Rahm Emanuel and calling him for, for him to resign. And what have they been saying? Well, the mayor is calling on the community to, to help more. You know, part of the problem with solving this, these crimes is that Police are rarely there when a shooting is committed, right? You know, a gunman's not going to shoot somebody when a cop's uh, standing right. across the street watching him. But part of the problem that Chicago suffered from 
is a uh, and particularly in these communities that are hardest hit um is a very strained relationship with the police department um more recently uh it goes back to the Laquan McDonald video um uh, which was the city was forced to publish in 2015 that showed an officer named Jason Van Dyke, who is white, shoot a 17-year-old black teen 16 times while it appears that he's uh, veering away from police um, who were uh, trying to arrest him uh, after reports that he'd been breaking into some trucks. Um, that really chilled the relationship uh, between the community and police. But it goes in Chicago, it goes back way further, um, you know, to, you know, in the uh, 70s and 80s uh, with Commander John Burge and his midnight crew um, that was found to have tortured suspects uh, on the west side of the city. Um, the city has long had a problem with unconstitutional policing. You know, they've, over the last decade, 12 years or so, they've spent over $700 million on settlements related to allegations of police misconduct. So this has been building for years and years, uh, the strain, uh, and the strain is now, uh, and has been for a while, been impacting police work. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's, a, it's, it, it's this endless cycle that we now find ourselves stuck in. Right. Well, in the meantime, we hope that uh, the police do get some good leads and find some of those people that did commit these crimes. Amir Madhani, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. She's had a long relationship with China, as has, in fact, her husband, who has done a lot of business over there. When she became senator, she apparently inherited a driver, little beknownst to her, she says, this guy uh, apparently had his own uh, cultivating of a relationship with China. Joining us now is Andy Ross, San Francisco Chronicle columnist. I love a good spy story or anything that having to do with spies. Obviously, it's one of these worlds that we're not involved in. And, and to find out what's going on behind the scenes is always fun. There was a story that picked up over the weekend. President Trump was calling out Dianne Feinstein for having a spy in her midst for uh, some 20 years. It's actually true. This happened five years ago where the FBI notified her that there was a spy in her midst. What was that all about? Well, that's right. You know, uh, Dianne Feinstein, of course, has been long in San Francisco as a politician, starting with when she was back as mayor and really cultivated a relationship herself with China and particularly Shanghai, where she opened uh, one of the city's first big sister cities. In fact, I think she later invited the president of China, who had been the mayor of Shanghai at the time, Zheng Zemin, to San Francisco, where she hosted him in her home. So she's had a long relationship with China, as has, uh, in fact, her husband, who has done a lot of business over there. As it turned out, when she became senator, she apparently inherited a driver, little beknownst to her, she says. This guy uh, apparently had his own uh, cultivating of a relationship with China. It's interesting that you say that she inherited him. I hadn't seen that yet, but he was with her for many years. The FBI ultimately did say that he did not share any classified secrets. Tell us how that person got involved right. in the spy game. Well, like, well, well I, 
as we're told, it what happened was this person was more of a gopher in her office and uh, did a lot of errands for her. But it, it, he also did things like help keep the relationship going with the Chinese consulate. And in fact, at one point was uh, dispatched over there to issue a proclamation when one of the consul generals was preparing to leave. Now, supposedly what happened was this person occasionally started making trips over to China himself to visit relatives. He used Chinese-American, as I understand, but was going over there. And somewhere along the way was introduced to somebody who appeared to be connected to the equivalent of the uh, Chinese CIA and was befriended by this person. And when he would go back to China, he would see this person. And that is where the FBI got word that this driver was having some kind of a relationship with this person and started monitoring his activities. And I mean, it's a good place to have a spy senator of the United States. She was the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee at that time. So if there were any secrets to be spilled, that's a good person to have there. Him being the driver, I mean, he was poised to maybe overhear some good conversations, although that never materialized. Right. That's what you would think. Now, again, Feinstein's office insists there was no leakage of intelligence and that, in fact, this, this driver had no access to kind of intelligence information and was stationed out here in California and wasn't there in Washington. So he was rifling through her desk, probably didn't find much out here. <laughs> According to the sources, it said that they interviewed him and Diane forced him to retire. Obviously, they fired him, but Right. Was he charged with anything? Did, did it carry well, any legal consequences? As we understand it, no, that he was allowed to retire. I think the FBI somehow must have satisfied itself that he hadn't really had any real knowledge of anything substantial. The driver himself apparently claimed he was duped that he didn't realize that this person was a... He wasn't attached to the Chinese government or something, right. or, or the Chinese CIA, as you had said. Well, that's it. And and so somehow he was just allowed to quietly retire. Interesting. You know, this is a, 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 lar a part of a larger story. Uh, Politico ran a story talking about espionage on the West Coast and in Silicon Valley. They were saying a lot of times these people aren't traditional spies in the traditional sense of the term. You know, they're out here trying to get trade secrets or get uh, technological blueprints and advances and things like that. That's kind of what the espionage game is like in Silicon Valley. It clearly is. It's very tied up with business and academics, you know, circles where people go to conferences and meet each other and talk about ideas just almost on a regular basis. It's interesting if you get the releases from the U.S. Justice Department out here in California, you see people who are being charged on a regular basis with some sort of dealing of secrets and stuff that you might consider espionage. All right. Well, you never know who's a spy, even a guy you might have known for 20 years. <laughs> Andrew Ross, San Francisco Chronicle columnist. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback. So don't forget to leave us a comment, give us a rating and tell us the stories you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.